Right, hello and welcome back to The Cine Skinny. It's the podcast from the team behind The Skinny magazine. It is this week, Peter Simpson, Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Lewis Robertson. Hi. Uh, Anna Heat is away, but we'll just have to go on without her. But we did, uh, to be fair, talk a lot about the book she's just had out two weeks ago. Oh, she yeah, she had her day in the sun. Yeah, she she's really, gone now. She really did, and now she's moved on to better things. Uh, London, I believe they call it. So if you want to hear that, that is like the previous episode on the feed. It's all about her book, BFF, so you can check that out. Uh, but Jamie is back this week because last week you were away working on that top secret project that we couldn't tell anyone about, but now we can, which is the indie cinema guide that we did with Film Hub Scotland. Yes. Isn't that right, Jamie? Yes. Can we tell them about it? I don't know. We're, yeah, doing, the, we're, we're doing the launch on Thursday. But yeah, it's, it's a, a new guide to cinema over the next few months. We're working with Film Hub and yeah, it's going to help people have a good idea of what coming out in the next few months so we've got films like Leonardo Will Never Die which is the film we're going to talk about today but also got things like um, Return to Soul, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, so lots of things are coming out and we've got some interviews, uh, we speak to um, Paul Gallagher who's the um, programmer at uh, Glasgow Film Theatre and yeah it's just a celebration of cinema saying why these films are really good and you can go and see them in the, on the big screen. Yeah, that's the that's the, basically the gist. At the movies. So, yeah, it's 32 pages, it's free, and you can get it at, like, GFT, Cameo, Dominion, DCA, and indie cinemas and places across Scotland. So that's why Jamie wasn't here two weeks ago. Speaking of Return to Seoul, we've got two free screenings of that coming up with uh, Mubi. So one at Summer Hall on the 24th of April and CCA on the 26th. Glasgow is sold out. Edinburgh isn't. And then we also have screenings of Matinee, the Joe Dante, John Goodman, Giant Ant film on the 10th and 11th of May. The skinny.co.uk slash tickets for all of those. Jamie, anything to add? Yeah, hopefully we can talk about Matinee. Uh, I think that's a really fun one to revisit. So if uh, anyone wants to chat about that, we can either chat about it before the screening or after the screening if you go. Or on maybe the next episode of the podcast, he said, looking at his spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's all the kind of uh, table setting out of the way. But, Jamie, I believe you also want to talk about, before we get into the big bit, uh, Glasgow Short Film Festival, which just finished at the weekend, and you were at it. Yes, I was. I, unfortunately, I didn't get to see as much as I usually do at Glasgow Short Film Festival, but it is one of my favourite festivals. It's just a really kind of buzzy, fun event. And actually, this year is kind of back to full strength. You know, we have had a couple of editions which were online because of You Know What, and then last year um, there was like just a bit of residual hangover from the pandemic so there wasn't as many kind of parties and guests and yeah it feels a bit smaller but this year people were back baby the, the, the international filmmakers were back the um the, the cinemas were packed um did you say that our the soda jock screening that we sponsored was so full you couldn't even get a ticket and you were the one who'd recommended we sponsor yeah i couldn't get a ticket to anything <laughs> on the saturday night so i that was what i was hoping to do i was going to go to that there was a whole big saturday night thing done and i just couldn't get a ticket we're, we're too successful in promoting the, the event that I couldn't go along. You said in the office the other day, we've done too good of a job. I know. <laughs> Next time, just do it half arse, then we'll get in. Yeah. <laughs> no bother. Well, I've learned my lesson. Um, but yeah, I um, also did get to see the opening night, which was fantastic. It was Omos. I don't know if you remember, we had a feature on this uh, a few months ago in the magazine. It's uh, the short film by Reese's Pieces, or Reese Hollis, who's this cabaret performer. And essentially, it's a, sh a short film, a kind of really kind of dreamy Wizard of Oz style film following several um, performers through P Puck Glen, which is this kind of forest in Danoon, which I hadn't really heard about, but it's this kind of really magical, dreamlike place. And yeah, it's basically his, his premise is he basically just wanted to celebrate kind of great black performers. So he's got this kind of uh, quartet of performers, including him, who just basically perform in this space. Um, 
yeah, and it's just a really kind of dreamy, fun film. You've got like a, a real kind of mix of performers. You've got like an amazing dancer. You have a pole dancer. You have a soprano singer. And then uh, Reese's Pieces himself, who, who does this kind of rap um, performance. Um, really cool, really fun. But what kind of made it even more excellent is after the screening, um, we had a kind of big performance from a couple of the performers. And it was in just in GFT1. And that's not a kind of space we expect to be blown away by performers. But Reese's Pieces did his thing, which was just, just really great and fun. He's, he's utterly charming. And if you get a chance to see him in Cabaret, I would say go. He's like clearly a master. But um, I was at, utterly blown away by um, the soprano singer, Andrea Baker, who is like, I mean, I'm not an expert on classical music or opera, but she's, you know, a big deal. And my God, like what a captivating performer. She just like performed with no mic. She performed uh, this kind of amazing opera performance from a... I think the first opera ever written by a black woman that was made in the 40s in America uh, had like four performances and, and stuff that was never performed again, basically. This was like the second performance ever in the UK. Uh, and then she just did like a whole bunch of like cool like divas. She did like some Aretha Franklin. She did some like Donna Summer, like some Diana Ross, just like like it was the easiest thing in the world and totally captivating in like a, in like a like normal cinema without any fancy lighting or anything. So yeah, very fun night. Good stuff. It sounds great. I mean, this idea of captivating people in a cinema, does this mean we have to release giant ants in the cinema for matinee? Yeah, clearly. If, yeah, forget 4DX. This is how you should do <laughs> cinema. You should have like just an amazing soprano just come on and just do some stuff. I think the uh, the 4DX thing might be foreshadowing for something that we come on to later. Yeah, yeah. But for it, yeah. Spots, we'll keep that in our pocket. Yeah, preemptive now. spoiler for about 15 minutes' time. But for now, we'll just go straight on to the first of the new releases we want to talk about this week, which is... Leonor Will Never Die, which is, I believe, a Filipino action slash drama slash various other things. I don't know if you can tell. I didn't have a chance to see it because I was putting on a club night on Saturday night. But, uh, Lewis, do you want to take uh, the old college try at a potted synopsis for Leonor Will Never Die? Uh, yeah. Um, so it's a really, really weird film in kind of a wonderful way, though. It follows Leonor, who is this uh, uh, elderly screenplay writer um, who has like, you know, it's been ages since she's released, published a screenplay um, and how what she writes are these really sort of schlocky 80s style exploitation action films. Uh, but of course her ordinary life is, well, it's a lot more bleak. It's a lot more cynical. There's not as much fun stuff going on. Her son, who she lives with, is always getting on about her not paying the bills or whatever. Uh, so when she's suddenly struck by a falling television set, she lapses into a coma and finds herself transported into the dream world of the screenplay she's recently been trying to rewrite. Um, it's really funky and just weird and different. And there's a, like a very clear boundary between, you know, quote unquote reality and quote unquote fantasy, which is that like this really like this sort of 80s, sort of Filipino, like Filipino Jean-Claude Van Damme style film uh, is like shot in 16 millimeter. It's got hammy acting. These fight scenes are really sort of like goofy and ill-coordinated. You can see people moving between shots and stuff like that, uh, which is great because like I always like seeing stuff filmed in 16 millimeter. I just think it looks really nice and it's a really good way to make stuff look retro and authentic. But here it's quite utilitarian as well. It's like drawing a line between these two different worlds. But 
you know, as time goes on, it just gets more and more meta. The overworld, reality itself, is clearly not reality because there's like a translucent ghost just chilling out and like no one draws any attention to it. Everyone seems a little bit obsessed with you know, fantastical things, be they like soap operas or, you know, these crazy political campaigns they're running. Um, it gets a bit wild, but uh, I don't want to give any spoilers away. It just, it, it, but really like, it's quite a cute film. It's quite a cute film about like the importance of fantasy in our lives and how comforting that is. And honestly, Sheila Francisco, who plays Leonor, I, I could watch forever. I think we need more meta action films led by kind old grandmas. I could just watch her do whatever. It's so entertaining. Yeah, no, when I had the plot, I had a very different film in mind. I don't know if you remember uh, that kind of 90s film, Stay Tuned, with John Ritter. It's like, a, it's like It was one of my favourites when I was a kid. It's about a guy who's like obsessed with TV and then eventually he gets like for some magical reason he gets like a new cable channel and he gets like thrown into the TV and he's like trying to get out. I thought it was going to be something a bit more straightforward than that but like you say this is a bit more magic realism in that from the very opening there's a ghost wandering around and you think okay it's a ghost in the background fair enough but then people start interacting with the ghost and it, the ghost gives Leonor advice and mm -hmm. then it's hanging out with his dad and having a beer so it's like it's it's like from the, from the off the film has like a little bit off kilter and I think it's maybe just like a little bit of like Filipino cinema is like a bit more creative. Like, I, you know, if you think of uh, Lab Diaz films, for example, it's something we spoke about a little bit with uh, Iana Murray um, at the GFF podcast, how like there's something just a little bit off about it. And just, I think it's just like, it's because it's working in a, a, a medium that's a bit different from just like the standard Hollywood fare that we're so used to. And, and you know, obviously British cinema uh, has been so influenced by that, but it feels like Filipino cinema for some reason has gone off in its own direction and, and it's finding it's, it's, it's taking influences from America but, but you know making its own thing and this I think was completely its own thing I found it really imaginative um, it, you know I really love the idea of like a, um, an artist kind of working through grief through their art and that's kind of kind of turns out to be the main sort of premise um, which is something you've seen loads of times before but it was just done so originally here um yeah, so, so yeah, in a way, I found that really moving. The sort of idea that this 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 woman uh, is is using her art to, you know, and and it's, it's, it's an artist who can no longer do their art anymore as well. So it's like so it's so it's, it's goofy and as daft as it sounds, it actually has a really kind of melancholic air to it, and I think that comes well through the performer. Like she has a kind of very kind of sad, uh, sad eyed performance. You know, she's like on the on the brink of tears quite a lot, but she's also kind of like play fight with the kids in the street so, so it's, it's, it's yeah it's really charming um if anything i would say maybe it was a little bit too cute i think what what disappointed me a little bit towards the end was i didn't get the kind of emotional release that i felt was coming in the film because it gets a little bit too meta mm -hmm. and i don't want to spoil how it ends because it is kind of like very charming the ending but uh, even it, well, I'll tell you what happens. Uh, <laughs> okay, if, any, if any, because anyone who actually wants to see this film, skip ahead. I'm going to guess from the look on Jamie's face about 90 seconds. I won't tell you how it ends, but what I'll say is what happens is it's so meta that the, the director comes in and says, actually, that ending is not right. Mm -hmm. so, so, like, so you see the ending, it's, it's cute, but it's not quite satisfying. So the, the director comes in with, she's talking, I think, to her editor. So they're just on a kind of rooftop. Um, in Manila somewhere chatting about like yeah this isn't quite right like the, 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 the actors saw the cut and they weren't happy and then they do something else and it, and it gets a more satisfying ending but yeah it's a uh, I feel like maybe if it just went for the more emotional ending 
it might have kind of got me more. I think that, like, you know, what I mentioned earlier is that even the reality of this world is not really reality. There's a ghost there and weird sort of strange things happen. And I think that there, there's a cynical way where you could say that's to its detriment because by not having reality, you can't really feed into the relationship between reality and fantasy. But at the same time, it is still like a really interesting film just in that it is, you know, doing oh, this is a film that is being improvised by a full cast and crew and editing team as it goes on. And I've seen like little bits and bobs about that before, but I think this is the best one that I've seen of it. Like, you know, like I say, we sort of go into this 16 millimeter world, but there's also bits where we are sort of in window, like screen grabs of editing software as they pick different clips to use as the ending of the film. So it's very multimedia in that way. So I think that, yeah, I think that like, the discourse of it, or whatever, you know, the, 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 the theme that it's trying to characterize of the relationship between fantasy and reality might get a little bit lost along the way, but I think that's for the, like, really, really unique and imaginative style that it really nails. Yeah, I guess what it reminds me of is something recently is actually everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, they're totally different in, in the way that um, Leonor's a bit more kind of obviously low budget and a bit more kind of rough around the edges and everything everywhere all at once is utterly slick Hollywood filmmaking. But they're both kind of uninhibited in their filmmaking. Like they, they, they're doing things that I've never seen before and they're using the camera and all the kind of tools of cinema to tell the story imaginatively. And I think that's that's to me what impressed me most about it is like how I was surprised by every scene. There was always just something happening which was new. Um, and yeah, Maybe a little bit too cute, but then I felt the same about everything, everything all at once no. as well. I just wasn't satisfied with how it arrived. So maybe it's something to do with me, like uh, you know, because I feel like there's a stuff the distancing effect when you can see what the filmmakers, when the filmmakers do, playing with all these fun ideas of cinema, it does kind of break you out of it a little bit. So maybe it's that's more to do with me, and I should just sort of be, be just you know be more attuned to kind of just like letting watch over me. But yeah. Uh, but if you if you liked everything all uh, everything everything everywhere all at once, I think you might get a kick out of this as well. It's, it's playing with the same sort of imaginative, you know, your reality can also be, um, you know, fantasy, um, that kind of idea. Would it help your immersion if they dropped a television on someone's head in the screening room? <laughs> Perhaps. Really put you in that. Yeah, if you're, if you're concussed, I think everything would be more fun. I'm sure. <laughs> We're inventing immersive cinema. Yeah. <laughs> Look out. Um, so Leonor Will Never Die is out in UK cinemas from the 7th of April. So check out that when it comes out. I've not seen it, but I will soon. All right, the main event, the big one, the top boy, John Wick, he's back. So John Wick 4, Keanu Reeves is back as everyone's favourite sad lad assassin. He's still trying to get his freedom from the high table, so he's off on a globetrotting adventure to try and hunt down this marquee so he can finally quit the life that he quit, then he unquit, and then he tried to quit again. Mm -hmm. uh, so Ian McShane, Lawrence Fishburne, and the late great Lance Reddick are all back. New faces to add to the melange of people to be punched are Bill Skarsgård, who plays the aforementioned marquee in the sparkly suit jacket. Donnie Yen plays Kane, who is like a blind assassin and former pal of Mr. Wick. Rina Sawayama plays Akira. Shamir Anderson plays Mr. Nobody, who's this kind of tracker who just sort of like follows everybody around and then occasionally shoots people. Uh, and Clancy Brown is the harbinger who turns up dressed like Captain Birdseye carrying the world's biggest hourglass. Dudes rock. Jamie, what did you think? 
I mean, the thing about John Wick is I have such a good time watching these films, like an absolute blast, but they do not stay in my head for even a minute after I leave the cinema. So even though I reviewed the last John Wick film for The Skinny, the actual plot machinations of what was going on totally left me. So when I was, so I just went in just assuming it would come back and it took me a good 10, 15 minutes to get my bearings again. Because the thing about John Wick is actually they actually have no plot. The plot is basically... Um, you know, people after John Wick, and he's going to kill them before they kill him. That's essentially it. You could put it on a, like a, the end of a bullet. It's so like short. But what it does have is this really dense mythology and dense lore, and this universe, which is full of the high table, this kind of mysterious organization that's controlling everything. You have this kind of series of hotels, which are kind of safe havens to assassins that have their own kind of rules and currency. Uh, its own kind of secret rooms and uh, things like that. So yeah, that's what you have to remember. All these, and it was kind of like, yeah, I feel like I needed a kind of like little reminder of the film before going into it, even though I reviewed it and I've seen all the films. Um, but in saying that, I think what one wins me over every time is just the production of design. This, these are films made with so much care. You know, like um, you know, the Oscars would never look at these films in terms of production design or costumes or uh, effects but they're 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 gorgeous you know so there's a section at this osaka continental hotel which is just stunning it's like absolutely jaw-dropping there's a section in berlin at a club with waterfalls uh indoors um which is insane um it's run by scott atkins that's one, one another person to add in along scott atkins is this amazing if, if you're into b movies is this kind of like honky um, mixed martial arts fighter who's um, in a lot of kind of like B movies, and here he's playing a kind of like he's he's got a fat suit on and he's playing this kind of German gold toothed club owner. I think he's playing a character who, for legal reasons, is different from both Kingpin from the Marvel films and the Penguin from the most recent Batman films, and also Auric Goldfinger. <laughs> yes, yeah, but he, but he's great, and then you think, oh, he's just in a fat suit, but they, oh yeah, of course he, he gets the kick some ass as well so it's just it's just full of fun inventive sequences and every time it goes to a new city you think oh they're not going to use this city in an interesting way but yeah it goes to paris and it finds interesting ways to use two of the biggest landmarks in paris so yeah it's just a film that i think you have to see in the cinema you know it's like you will have a good time even if you know nothing about this because i like like you say you don't really need to know anything all you need to do is sit back and enjoy it it's just mental insane yeah, I think it's interesting because like, so the first John Wick film was such a big deal. And I think that what really helped his success is that it, it had virtually no plot, right? It's a retired hitman who comes out of retirement to take revenge on a bunch of like Russian mobsters. Really cut and dry, really simple. And then it's like, okay, we're making a John Wick too. So you know that like, they're not, they're not necessarily doing this because the story's yet to be told, right? They're doing it because they want to make more movies. They want to like get more audiences and they'll keep innovating and stuff like that. It's just that like, I think the more we introduce these factions and backstories and politics and stuff like that, the more the space between fighting scenes gets a bit like contrived and it loses a lot of the simplicity that makes John Wick so good. Um, in the first one, uh, the sort of like continental table world uh, isn't really like embodied like in this one by Bill Skarsgård, it's just sort of suggested, like it contrasts with John Wick's monochrome modernist house by having this like very vibrant neon uh, mise-en-scene. Uh, whereas like by this point, like, you know, Bill Skarsgård has to show up in a very glittery tailcoat to kind of like pretend to be the big villain. Um, 
And I think that, yeah, like the, the, they, they keep innovating throughout the fight scenes, which is the most important thing. I think that's what audiences will really like. But you're right in that the start of John Wick 4 is quite bumpy because it's so entrenched in the plot of the series so far. Uh, if you, you know, fans of the third one will have seen him like go to Morocco and like give his wedding ring to this elder, uh, which he had to, you know, get by, uh, severing ties with the Ruska Roma and by the midway point of John Wick 4 all of these all of this is reversed he's gotten his wedding ring back he's back with the Ruska Roma you know with these action films you have to sit down and at least I have to tell my brain stop paying attention to the plot because it's definitely not important but that gets harder and harder for me as time goes on because it's clear it's clear that they're just sort of improvising it as they go along but the uh the action's broken into these sort of three set pieces at the beginning one one in Osaka then in Berlin then in Paris and Again, I was kind of rolling my eyes about the plot and some of these really weird characters they just keep throwing your way. But by the time we get to Paris, some of them are so innovative, some of them are so cool. They they always manage to add new elements. So there's a, a like a skirmish on the ring road around the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, so you have to like fight each other whilst also dodging unhinged European drivers. So they always are able to kind of, and I think there's like a top-down one that's in a like Parisian apartment or whatever that feels very much like a video game, like Hotline Miami or something. And I think that's the thing that everyone's going to be talking about when they go and see this film. Yeah, I think that the John Wick series remains the best video game adaptation that there has been. It's just that it is an adaptation of the concept of video games. Yeah. Because like it has all the hallmarks of like the structure. Is These films are structured like video games in that you get a mission. You're cover shooting with Rina Sawayama. You're doing a boss battle in a nightclub surrounded by NPCs that won't stop dancing. But like enemy starts coming in waves and then when the wave ends you get like a second wave of more equipped enemies. You've got camera that can seemingly go everywhere. You've got a hero who has like all the buffs and a plus 10 for dodging bullets <laughs> shot at him from literally a yard away. And there's all these other little things that like kind of feed into this. There are all these shots that me and Lewis were talking about in the office that are basically loading screens for the next bit of the film. There are three separate occasions where John Wick is framed in the center of the frame and he walks up some stairs into the path of an incredibly recognizable landmark from the city he has just arrived in. And it's like, this is what you would put in a video game to signify that the rest of the Berlin level would be loaded in 10 seconds once your internet came back on. Like, they're just an incredible, like, they take so much, they clearly take so much inspiration from, like, martial arts and action cinema from around the world, but they also take so much, influ like, influence and inspiration from just modern video games and mm -hmm. um, in the way that the structure is put together and in the way that it tells its story but i think the main thing that as we've all said the combat is still really exciting really visceral all the greatest hits of john wick getting outing you've got fights in nightclubs people being attacked by dogs close range gunplay in glass rooms filled with neon strip lights all the all the hits you could possibly want people being thrown down flights of stairs there are two, the sequence in Paris, which is basically one long 45 minute fight scene in various different hilarious environments, is incredible. Mm -hmm. It's like really exceptionally done. The, the kind of top down sort of like XCOM view scene you were talking about in that, in that apparently somebody was refurbishing their entire like townhouse apartment down yeah. the street from the Sacre Coeur <laughs> and then all these guys burst in and start firing like flamethrower shotgun at each <laughs> other. So the home insurance is gonna have a field day with that. But yeah, I think that it still has, as much as the kind of lore has got away from it, it still has that physicality and that like visceral 
punchy, punchy shout shout. It's got what you want from this kind of action film. And I would bet that Keanu Reeves kills more people in this film than he says words of dialogue. Not lines of dialogue. Almost words. definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I would hope so, because unfortunately, Keanu Reeves is way better at stage combat than he is at delivering lines. <laughs> well, I actually think he is actually why this works, because I think sometimes revenge films, because that is a kind of revenge film in a way can be a bit distasteful, you know, so you think of, like, Clint, Clint Eastwood films or, you know, Liam Neeson, there's also something right-wing about them, you know, it's this kind of, like, re reestablishing the patriarchy, you know, that's kind of usually the plot. But it doesn't feel like that with, with the Keanu Reeves, just because Keanu Reeves is such a kind of nice, zen guy. You don't get the impression that John Wick is really enjoying, like, stabbing people, you know, like, he's basically just trying to survive, and there's something about that that, make, that gives the films a kind of joyous quality like I don't feel like oh I've seen a million people be stabbed in the eye but like I don't feel gross about it they're also, very, they're also very well maybe dog friendly isn't the right word but like I think the, the yeah the, the relationship that the character has with this dog that he like finds is, is like you know, really you know endearing I, mean? I think and you could argue that oh, it's just faceless people being killed which which maybe desensitizes you to violence but I think there, there is something about it that it doesn't feel nasty or negative in any way like i feel like there's something sort of zen about it it's, it's like that kind of zen performance you have from keanu you know yeah and i think part of that is because in a lot of these films there's a presented morality to killing everybody it's like i must do this whereas in this it's like because keanu reeves doesn't seem to have once he's got his bit of revenge he's basically just like i'm going to kill all these people because they keep shooting at me mm -hmm. so then it's like it removes that uh, element from it so it's like i can kill all these people with moral impunity Watch me uh, give this guy a judo takedown and then shoot him in the face. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the rest of the cast, Donnie Yen is brilliant. He was so good. Yeah. He's really good. Um, Ian McShane remains the sassiest man in the world. Uh, Bill Skarsgård's French accent, that's a choice. Yeah, it's very. we were talking about this, very Monty Python. He pretty much just replaces his R's with W's. That's what he, think, he thinks of French I'm accents. sure that the first words out of his mouth were like, we're wee-wee-wee-wee disappointed in you. <laughs> he seemed to give up on that, though. I feel like that disappeared throughout the thing. He's, I mean, he's just there because he looks amazing in those suits. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, his tailoring is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And, like, it, it does maintain the John Wick thing that, like, every... You can tell that somebody is a main character if they are from a country, but they are playing as if they're from a different country it's like it's like new james bond where everyone just gets to have a good laugh on tour with the boys yeah. but instead of killing on a neo-colonial tip for king and country john wick kills because he's just good at it now here's a question now this series has been going for about 10 years but how long has john wick been killing people how, how long has from the start of the first film to this it has happened the first three films take place over a week which is insane but I think that, again, you know, the sort of tightness of the earlier films is maybe a little bit lost here because in the fourth one there's these, like, big drastic cuts where all of a sudden he's back in Morocco and then he's back in New York and then he's now in Paris and Berlin. So these huge distances that he crosses without us seeing him, like, waiting at his gate for his flight to be announced or whatever. Yeah, he's not, he's um, not traveling easy yet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah spatial, but, uh, spatial geography found dead yeah, along, the, uh, alongside a hundred people, <laughs> some of whom have been partially eaten by a dog. Yeah. The the fourth one, I don't know, maybe there's some clues if you're like, if you've got a keen enough eye when they like, when we're in that weird sort of accountancy office with all the tattooed clerks and they're like updating his bounty, maybe there's dates or something like that you can see. But the first three, I think in the third one, at some point, someone mentions that about a week 
it, a week ago he like yeah. went on a killing spree. I, I reckon it's about a fortnight. Yeah. This guy has been killing people and beating people. It's the worst fortnight of his life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I agree. Like I, I'd say the standout sequence is that one in Paris, the kind of overhead shot with these kind of uh, flame throwing guns. That I, I don't know how to explain what they are. But um, but what I love is actually. I mean, that's like obviously lots of like CGI and the camera mm. is like, you know, it's one shot and it's like, I, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of computer generated stuff happening. But what I really appreciate is just the old school kind of like fight craft as well. There's a sequence where uh, I'll, I'll say someone has to fall down several flights of stairs, uh, you know, and it's like a very kind of Scythian task kind of joke. But it's like, it's a real guy falling downstairs and it's just mm -hmm. like really impressive stunt work. And like, that's what I love, just the craft, even just like the basic of falling down a stairs, it does it better than any other film. You know, there's no cutaway. We see the guy go down one flight, then another flight, then another flight. It's funny, but it's also, wow, somebody just did that in, in front of the camera. I mean, the, 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 the oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, they also Chekhov's gun it because they threw a guy down a staircase for no apparent reason in the first 20 minutes. And you're like, that's weird. Yeah, maybe this maybe this shows that staircases are evil. In the <laughs> <laughs> my one uh, my one disappointment was there's a kind of check off sumos. Yeah, so in, so we in never Japan, see them do anything. The, we see two sumo wrestlers, and we think, okay, but we're going to have like John Wick fighting some sumo wrestlers, or some sumo wrestlers fighting someone. And w come on, like if, if you have a sumo wrestlers in Japan, we want to see that happen. I mean, like we also talked about Mister Nobody, who's a really interesting character that doesn't really get to kind of make a case for himself. Like he has this very. He's uh, performed really, really well. Who's he performed by? The... It's um, Shamir Anderson. Shamir Anderson. Yeah, like a really imposing, sort of interesting character. The first of his kind of the first of his kind that we've seen in uh, in the John Wick films, and that he's like really artistic and sort of not very elegant and bespoke. But um, he never really gets a, like a massive scene where he kind of gets to justify his presence in the plot. I think that like this, again, like if you start to like look into the script and what's going on, any amount of scrutiny will show that this is just a, a vehicle to get us from one fight scene to the next. This yeah. is Baroque high camp ultraviolence. And I love it. Exactly. Yeah. The dudes, once more, they rock. <laughs> so yeah, John Wick is in cinemas everywhere, constantly, all the time. Uh, Lewis, I believe, went to see it in 4DX. Not on purpose. Not on purpose. Um, <laughs> well, not on accident necessarily. Uh, the only screening we could see it in, because it was sold out, because everyone loves it, because it's so thrilling and exciting, we had to go and see it in a much less subscribed 4DX theatre. Nice. I, I, I opened a can of Coke and was like, oh, I've got to finish this in the like, next five minutes, otherwise I'm going to get launched across the room. <laughs> in case you're just going to hear a dog barking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> So I suppose another thing that we wanted to talk about, or I specifically wanted to talk about, kind of inspired by John Wick, we just wanted to have a wee chat about some other great examples of what I have dubbed in the notes, uh, action, punchy, bang, bang, shouty, shooty cinema. Mm -hmm. um, because I think one of the reasons that I want to have a chat about it is because the John Wick films, they do this thing of bringing in different world cinema fighting styles and different ways of looking at a way that you can kick a man in the head. Um, John Wick 2 and 3 in particular, he'll fight some guys from the raid. Uh, so he'll fight them with like hand-to-hand -hand short swords like you would in the raid. Or he'll move through a room doing his like Navy SWAT team bit because he is American slash Canadian. Citation needed. Um, so one film that I want to talk about, which I think is kind of like useful in thinking about this, is Kung Fu Hustle, which feels a bit like the bizarro brother of the John Wick series. Now, Lewis, you haven't seen this. Hmm. Jamie, have you seen Kung Fu Hustle? I haven't, no. Okay, well, I'll tell you both about it now. 
Um, so it's one of these films where kind of like John Wick is very referential to its own genre and to like the craft of cinema in general. Like Kung Fu Hustle's full of these like nods to Hong Kong classics. It's full of like a really diverse mix of like fighting styles, but also has loads of these like Hollywood movie references. Like one of the fights is like a kind of lift from The Matrix Reloaded. There's these two guys who act exactly like the Blues Brothers. There's like a weird reference to The Shining at some point. Um, but it's really interesting as well as this kind of like inflection point between like martial arts cinema coming from like China and Hong Kong and like Western Hollywood filmmaking. Like it feels like a kind of collaborate, like a smoosh cut between the two where it sort of takes the kind of like Looney Tunes, let's all have a laugh and the traditional martial arts, like let's all fight for honor and valor. And it's like, let's get shot of this honor and valor nonsense. Let's run around throwing axes at each other and having a grand old time. And one of the, but then the way it's very different from John Wick is because John Wick has a very staid and focused John Wick expression, whereas Kung Fu Hustle as a film is constantly mugging for the camera and having a bit of a laugh with it. Um, it's basically about a petty criminal who wants to join a gang. He goes to extort the residents of a slum and it turns out that they are all really good at martial arts. So you end up with these incredible action sequences that are basically like live action Looney Tunes, uh, extremely physical slapstick comedy, which doubles up as extremely funny but incredibly serious punch-ups. It's very funny, it's very goofy, it's very silly. And it came out at the same time, to tie it back into John Wick, it came out at the same time as like, kind of MMA was becoming more of a relevant cultural thing. And Donnie Yen, I was reading up on John Wick 4, Donnie Yen has talked about how like people were getting interested in like mixed martial arts, kind of renewed interest in martial arts filmmaking, and kind of changed the conversation around punching the fellas. Yeah, um, he... Donnie Yen was uh, in the Ip Man trilogy, yeah. which I've not seen, but it's meant to be a Is big... Is there not four parts now? Oh, maybe there's four. Yeah. I don't know. I need to check my sources. Uh, but, like, I've not seen, but they're meant to be a big deal because they introduced mixed martial arts to that kind of... that, that cinematic action mainstream... Well, see, I feel that's not true though, because End of the Dragon and is like was was the whole point of that was like everybody had different skills. So I don't know if that's quite true that they introduced. Well, maybe not introduced, but certainly like renewed interest in. Yeah. Um, but then there's having different styles, and then there's using loads a kind of like melange of styles all at once. That's true, actually. Yeah. yeah. Like when John Wick gives somebody a kind of like flying armbar, but then he also uses American martial arts, which is mm-hmm. to say a large gun aimed at yeah. you from very, very close range with no way of defending yourself. Yeah, I mean, John, like John Wick really does everything, doesn't he? He sort yeah. of uses like hand-to-hand combat, he uses weapons, he uses improvised weapons. There's um the bit in the third one, I can't remember the name of the guy he's up against. He's a, Is it Bojan Bogdanovic? That's the, the one. Basketball, the seven foot like, four basketball player. That's him, yeah, seven foot four basketball player, which is just a, one of my, I think it's my favorite fight scene from the entire John Wick franchise, having rewatched them all in preparation for four. Um, in which, yeah, they're just beating each other up with these giant old tomes that they find in the library. Um, but there's, like, a great physicality to that scene. But, yeah, like, so sort of John Wick uses everything, but that's still very different from mixed martial arts. Hmm. Like, mixed martial arts is now becoming its own discipline where you, you know, it has a set, like a like a set agreed-upon idea of what mixed martial arts is, hmm. its moveset, its limitations and its possibilities, um, whereas John Wick is more... Just crazy indulgent fantasy where everyone yeah. is like a Jedi, pretty much. It's because they wouldn't let you in the cage with a gun or a dog. Yeah. And I would say, rightly so. Yeah. J- just off topic, what is your favourite sequence from John Wick? Because I'm trying to remember what, what film it's from, but the, I my favourite one is the one in the knife shop. 
where they're, for some reason they're fighting in a knife shop and it just means they can use a multiple that's, different knives. Uh, again, having watched them all this weekend, that's the beginning of the third one. That's the third one. Uh, immediately after that fight I just mentioned. Yeah. So it, the third one starts so strong. Is it a knife shop or is it a knife museum? I thought it was like an <laughs> antique inventory or something. I can't remember. But anyway, it's just yeah. very fun because like, you yeah. know, put John Wick in a bun- with a bunch of knives and you're yeah. going to have lots of, lots of action. And then that's immediately followed by the most Looney Tunes ass bit of John Wick where he goes into the horse stables and he uses a horse as an environmental weapon. Yeah, he, slaps, he gets a he, horse. Yeah, he slaps a horse on the back and it kicks a man <laughs> so hard that he goes flying out of shot. Yeah. You almost, like, horses sort of show up in John Wick 4. They're not, no one really, they're not like a big deal. The third one, it was like a big deal that he has a horse now. But horses sort of show up. They're a bit of a, a, bit of a red herring. They don't turn out to be. There's not as much, like, fun animal. There's the dog, but... Doesn't really do much. Yeah. Like I said, the the tracker guy never really gets to sort of shine the way that I think that he should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jamie, do you have anything from the hist- wide, wide history of action cinema that you'd like to talk about briefly? Well, let's round this bit off. The one I was going to talk about, I was just a little bit inspired by uh, Donnie Yen's performance because I, I was going to say, uh, yeah, I agree, that's the best performance. And what I liked about it is because he's really thought about how a blind man would fight and uh, I've got to admit it doesn't really make sense his disability because he seems to be able to shoot people like I never quite understood how he was doing what he was doing how is he using they never explain it it's mm-hmm. just like some sort of like but what I loved is he never seemed to be looking at his targets I think that's just his, his skill he was, he was fighting and he just seemed to know where they were he, he, he wouldn't look at them so he wasn't using his eyes to fight and that, that kind of got me thinking of one of my favourite kind of B-movie gnarly kind of action films of recent years which was Upgrade don't think if didn't you see that? Oh, is who's an upgrade? Yes, yeah, uh, Logan Marshall Green. Oh. So the premise is it's set in the future where technology is everywhere, but this guy is a kind of petrolhead and isn't into technology. But what happens is he's in a motor. What's it? He's a car accident. Sorry, and uh, he severs his spine, and it means he can't walk. But he's given the opportunity of walking again by getting this AI put in his neck, which uh, which gives him the power of his limbs. But actually what happens is the AI can also do more than just let him walk. It can actually make him do anything. So so what happens is he he has to go and find what happens. It's a, bit, a kind of revenge, revenge film similar to John Wick in that he has to go and find what happened to his wife because his wife was murdered. It turns out the crash that he had with his wife was actually on purpose. Somebody planned it. And he, go, and he has to go on a revenge uh, tour. So it's a bit like the billion dollar man idea. It's like this guy who's been upgraded from being like this just normal guy to being a... Uh, action hero but the thing is he's totally oblivious to these powers so every time uh, he fights he doesn't know he can do it so he's like terrified with these powers so when he's punching a guy in the face or like gouging out somebody's eyes he's his face is is in awe or like so so it's just like i i I thought as a performance it was really interesting because it's from his head up he cannot fight but from his body down he can, mm-hmm. and that reminded me just of, of uh, Donnie Yen's character, who, like, from the head up, he's blind. His, you know, his eyes cannot help him fight, but his whole body knows how to fight. So that's, that's what it reminded me of. And it was just really well done. It's just, like, gnarly. Kind of, it's kind of got a kind of, like, um, cyberpunk kind of feel. Um, and, yeah, it's just, like, a really kind of fun, gnarly, very violent um, action film. Reminds me a bit of, like, Paul Verhoeven mixed with, like, you know, like, if Paul Verhoeven ever got into the kind of martial art mm-hmm. sort of territory, I imagine this is the type of movie he might make. And it's got, you know, great ideas as well about kind of AI and sort of technology. But yeah, it's just really a good, fun action movie. Yeah, and speaking of um, people doing good face acting in action films, I want to give a last shout-out to the late, great Lance Reddick, mm-hmm. who 
spoiler inbound for John Wick 4 gets shot right at the start. But he does some actually genuinely good and arresting and make you care acting as someone who is like, in the moment that he is shot, he doesn't just go, oh no. He has the kind of like the wide eyes of someone who is like, well, probably saw this coming. It still doesn't make it any easier when you yeah. get here. Um, he he is great in all of the John Wicks, and he's amazing in The Wire, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, he will be missed. It is my uh, like favorite convention of the of the John Wick franchise that Keanu Reeves is always sort of paired up with people who can act way way better than him. Um, Willem Dafoe's in the first one, obviously Ian McShane and Lawrence Fishburne are big ones, but yeah, Lance Reddick really I think delivers on the very like highbrow hoity toity like classy sort of atmos that they're trying to achieve. I think that he's a big part of that and it's such a shame that he's gone now. Yeah. Well, I think we will see him again in Ballerina. Like a, so like that's the series that's that's based on like a kind of spin-off of John Wick and like I think Keanu Reeves is going to have a cameo and um and Angelica Houston who is in John Wick 3 is also coming in there. So yeah, that's that should be fun. It's uh, Anna de Amaris who's the like main ballerina assassin, I believe. Yeah. Um, so that, that, so if you're if you're jonesing for more uh, John Wick action, this should deliver, I think. Yeah, and also Lance Reddick, one of the rare examples in this series of getting the 100% platinum badge for animal husbandry because mm-hmm. he looks after the dog. Dog's perfectly fine when it leaves. Yeah. <laughs> dog doesn't have a taste for human flesh. Dog doesn't have the, the unquenchable thirst for uh, rage and revenge. Just looked after the dog. Yeah. <laughs> good on him. Good concierge. I bet he can get you good tickets to any theatre show in London, uh, in New York as well. I mean, it's the it's the line that he delivers in the second one where he first takes care of the dog, where like John Wick's like, oh, can you take care of my dog? And Lance Reddick says, oh, I'm afraid that this facility does not offer that service. I, however, would be happy to take on the task <laughs> and it's very charming. It's yeah. like he's immediately likable. This facility doesn't, but I, a legend, can help <laughs> you out. <laughs> Okay, and I think is that that's probably that's about us for today, isn't it? I think so. Cool. Well, it just remains for me to thank Lewis. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Cheers, Peter. Thanks to Upload Studios and to Ethan in the booth, uploadstudios.co.uk. Uh, we will be back in two weeks' time with more chat about the films, and Anna Heat will presumably be back from London. Um, if you want to get us on socials, it's uh, at the Skinny Mag, and uh, yeah, if you want to get tickets for those Return to Soul or Matinee screenings, they are free. But if you're going to get tickets, do actually come. Seems like a fair deal, I think. TheSkinny.co.uk slash tickets for those. Um, you can find all the old episodes in the feed. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, go forth and punch them. At- no, that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> go forth in violence, my friends. We, our tagline can be what Jamie said earlier, which is everything would be better if you were concussed. <laughs> Drum roll off and we're done. <laughs>